Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Amina Tussaud is here to win. Make no bones about it. A digital strategist, podcaster, celeb-level speaker, and author, Aminatu is openly and joyfully ambitious, and she makes absolutely no apologies about her desire to get rich. And why should she? In Aminatu's view, ambition doesn't mean competition. She has zero interest in beating other women to the top. In fact, as she often states in the many interviews she does at publications like the New York Times, she wants us all to get there with her. And isn't that what girlfriends are for? Shocking as it may be, it's an unorthodox approach. And it's working like gangbusters. In 2012, Aminatu co-founded the networking group Tech Lady Mafia with her friend, Erie Meyer. And its membership has since grown to thousands. In 2014, she launched the podcast Call Your Girlfriend with best friend and co-host Ann Friedman. And today, it's not just one of the most popular podcasts among women, but one of the highest-ranked podcasts, period. Aminatu and Ann advocate Shine Theory, in which women and girls actively invest in each other's personal and professional well-being, treating each other as collaborators rather than competitors. Today, Aminatu is everywhere, in the New York Times, at the top of the iTunes charts, interviewing other powerhouses like Hillary Clinton and Rebecca Traister, broadcasting to thousands. But it hasn't all been high fives and fat paychecks. In 2017, she was diagnosed with endometrial cancer and spent a year in intense treatment fighting the illness that nearly killed her. Now, thankfully in remission, her personal and professional ethos is stronger than ever. She aims to live a rich life in every conceivable way she can. Refreshingly, Aminatu is just as open about her battles with mental health, a subject she speaks about frankly and frequently. Medication is nothing to be coy about, she insists. If you can't make your own neurotransmitter, she has said, a la Ina Garten, then store-bought is just fine. Therapy, good sleep hygiene, and consistent self-care are crucial ingredients in a secret sauce Aminatu is continually experimenting with. Today, she stands poised to make The Next Leap, a big book set to debut in 2020 called Big Friendship, co-authored again with Friedman. Six months before publication, it's already one of the buzziest titles of 2020. And that should be no surprise to anyone who knows Aminatu so. And if you're one of the few who don't know her yet, well, rest assured, you will soon. Aminatu so, it is such a pleasure and an honor to have you on on Style today. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. What really, a pleasure. I'm really, really, really excited. I am very excited. This is great. Well, I want to talk about your podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. So you launched your podcast in 2014 with your, would you call her your best friend, Ann Friedman? With my best friend, Ann Friedman, and our friend, Gina Delvac, who was then just a friend and now is like, you know, really ascended to the ranks of like besties as well. It's really fun to work with two other people, and it's really fun to see our relationships change in the work that we've been doing. So 
I am incredibly lucky that I get to work with two of my favorite human beings in the entire world. So you were doing that, though, before there was like a really noticeable boom in podcasts. Before Serial, yes. Podcast life before <laughs> Serial and podcast life afterwards. I think it's very different. And it's obviously an incredibly competitive space. The thing that's really interesting about that, right, is that we don't make the show to like chase listens outside of our advertisers telling us how many people they're selling our ads to Metrics like don't matter so much to us. We've been in this for long enough that we've survived a lot of waves of like, what's the new metric for why podcast matters? And I think that if the three of us had sat down and said like, let's make a show that's very successful one day, the show would probably, one, still not be here and probably also would not have been as successful. And I think that it's because it's a labor of love for all of us. It's nobody's full-time job. And the other thing that happens is that when you're first somewhere, you, you get to like stake out your territory, right? And so I think that... For us, it's been really cool to see so many other women's voices on the air. It's like we didn't invent the format that we were doing. But when people came calling to podcast, we had been there and we had had a catalog for a long time. And so it's nice not to be the only women on the air. So that's cool. What was it that you wanted to achieve in like having a podcast? Was it just because you were always having these really important, meaningful discussions together and you thought that this would be great if we could actually share them with an audience? I'd actually heard an interview with you recently. You, you were on another podcast and you said something that really spoke to me and it's something that I really feel strongly about this podcast as well is that this sort of radical honesty and creating a space where people can really just share and be themselves and not feel scrutinized or or criticized or judged by saying things that are really difficult sometimes. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the show itself owes Gina everything. Gina was, was the architect. She's the person who does the show. And so it was really her idea, like hearing me and Anne talk and saying, like, you guys could do a podcast one day. And I was like, what is a like, what's a podcast? But Anne and I had been collaborators in a couple of different things. We had a blog together, RIP, it's gone now, Instaboner. We, we've done like a, a couple of like digital ephemera kind of, of projects. And we've also just been friends for five years at that point. Like creative soulmates. Totally. And so I can't speak for, for Anna and Gina, but I think that for me, what I really wanted was one, I wanted to learn how to work in audio. I think that the curiosity driven kind of person is like, well, like if Gina says we can do it, then of course we can do it. She's going to hold our hand through it. And, you know, and I think that I think a lot about my work really as giving people permission to talk about what's going on with them. We're not really in this for the cult of personality. Or I don't share my stories because I think that I'm some sort of unique snowflake. I actually share them because I think that a lot of people go through the things that I go through. And a lot of times there is either shame or reluctance or what have you that really causes a block and makes people not share their experiences. And all I know from my own life is that anytime women, and not just women, anytime people whisper to each other about the things that are happening to them, it creates like a huge ripple. And so... It's really important to me to create space for that. We used to talk at Refinery29 about being really curious about things that women discussed in hushed tones because that was exactly the material that was the most relevant to them and finding community in that and finding people that they could ask questions. I remember when I was going through all my infertility stuff, it was really sad because there was nothing. There was nobody talking about what I had been going yeah. through. And I think there was so much shame and stigma attached to it, especially for really high-performing women. No one was really kind of coming forward and talking about some 
pretty brutal experiences with that. And you've really been a huge advocate in terms of just talking about your own mental health and just how you deal with that. And I thought that the way that you talked about it in that New York Times piece was really wonderful. You were able to not kind of make fun of yourself, but really just be able to discuss it in a way that was honest and really just relatable. Yeah, I mean, I think that a thing that I notice in America a lot, and I mean, I notice at other places, but here it's especially pronounced, is that there is this idea that if you are not hitting all of the markers of adulthood or you are not some sort of like epitome of, of healthiness that, that exists in a magazine or your body doesn't look a certain way, it's always your fault. It's always things never happen to you. It's always your fault. I always feel like are. I don't have the right stuff. Right, you never if have. I had all the right stuff. I feel like life would just be so much easier and better. <laughs> and to me, that's something that it, it just feels so demented. So talking about infertility, for example, you would never go up to someone and say, hi, what did you do to become infertile? Like, I think that we're all agree that that's an insensitive thing to say, but it's also like not a true thing to say. Mm-hmm. And yet we walk around feeling this huge sense of responsibility about anything that ails us, whether it's infertility, like I had cancer, I was diagnosed with cancer two years ago. And and in the beginning, I really had to push back on like, which one of my health behaviors is responsible for this? And mental health is the same way of like, what, what am I choosing that is wrong? And sometimes you really have to sit down and be like, you know what, like this is demented. This kind of thinking is really bonkers. And also it's just not true. Things happen to people, right? And if you look at the numbers on them, a lot of people are infertile, like men and women, right? A lot of people have mental health problems. So I think that really fighting the the feeling of being isolated in whatever is ailing you is probably the best thing that you can do for yourself. Because the more that you realize that it is normal and everybody around you is probably battling with it in one way, shape, or form. And just realizing that like saying it out loud, there's so much release in that. Yeah. There's just so much release in not feeling trapped by the things that you're, that you're ashamed of or that you're afraid of. For me, that's been a huge revelation, like telling the New York Times about my mental health really opened up a huge channels of communication with me and a lot of people that I already knew. I just I felt so lucky that my friends were willing to tell me about their own mental health woes, especially the men in my life who were like, oh, yeah, like this is a thing I never talk about. I was like, thank you for telling me. And the same thing happened to me when I disclosed that I had endometrial cancer. I think I'm pretty up to date on every illness that any one of my friends has ever had because they realize that it's not something you have to do alone. And also there's no shame in being sick. It happens. If you don't mind sharing it with us, how did your diagnosis happen? Uh, My diagnosis happened in a very intense kind of way and also in a way that's not surprising at all. My entire life, I have had debilitating periods. I got my period the summer between fifth and sixth grade. So I think I was like 10 or 11. And it's been downhill (laughs) since then. (laughs) Like the quality of life has not been great. But I think that what happened in having... How can things be downhill after sixth grade? (laughs) And speaking of like the power of talking to people out loud, it wasn't probably until I was at college because the women around me were talking about their periods, that I realized that it was not normal to bleed as much as I had been bleeding. 
Like I was having the weeks on end period. I was always tired. Was it just like tampon after tampon oh, after yeah. tampon? Tampons and pads. I was one of the girls that had to like double up. You had to like create an artificial diaper. When I think about the amount of money that I've spent on menstrual products, I want to scream because I could probably buy a house. But I just didn't know that it wasn't uh, normal to have your period for three weeks. I didn't know that. Well, that's because, also something that nobody ever talks about. Right. So, yes. Nobody ever talks about it. And when the women in college started talking about it, I was like, what? <laughs> you <people laughs> you don't bleed for two what? weeks? <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> you probably see a doctor about that. Um, you know, or your pain is not debilitating. <laughs> what? My whole life I had been in pain about my menstruation. And... Probably in the last five years, it got really bad to the point where I was like, okay, if I'm complaining out loud, it means that like something is very wrong. It was not the same like, oh, my period is just heavy and bad. It was just like very gnarly, like gnarly things were happening. I had to have a blood transfusion every couple of months because I was losing so much blood. And then I also worked this really intense job at Google and... I a lot of times had to weigh the and you like... And you were in marketing there, right? Yes. I led a marketing team at Google. And it was just this feeling of I can't do my job and take care of my body at the same time. So mm -hmm. I quit my job because I was so overwhelmed. And for me, that started this like, okay, if my body is going to become my job, if I'm going to apply every project management skill that I have for work into like diagnosing my illness, what is it? And it meant a lot of doctors and a lot of things. But by the end of it, I was journey. pretty sure I was like, well, you know, either I'm dying or there's a tumor in my body. I've watched 14 seasons of Grey's Anatomy. I've been reading all these books. <laughs> what is going to happen here? So by the time an MRI I was scheduled. I can diagnose myself. Right. By the time the MRI was scheduled, I had a pretty good idea of what was going on. And I remember my doctor saying, like, you have to come see me. And I tried to get it out of her on the phone. And she obviously wouldn't tell me. And when I showed up, I saw the look on her face and I was like, it's cancer, right? And she was like, yes. But you know, the thing that happened for me is that the diagnosis was actually a relief because it meant that I wasn't crazy. I was like, oh yeah, okay, I can work with this. Yeah. I can work with, there is a ginormous tumor in your uterus, even though that's bad news for many reasons. That made me feel more in control than the feeling that I had had my whole life that was just not knowing what was wrong with me. That's just remarkable. I think you having that clarity, it's like almost like in the indecision kind of cripples you and just like not mm -hmm. knowing, not making a decision, not making a choice. Because I think what happens once you have that news and that diagnosis, you're able to put a plan into place to actually, okay, how am I going to deal with it? Right. I love a plan. It also means, I love that a plan you, too. It means that you can start compartmentalizing a lot of things, which I love to compartmentalize. So it also just means that you have marching orders. And for me, that was really freeing. It was really, really freeing to, to know that there was something that could be done about it. Yeah. Cause you're obviously an incredibly disciplined person. And I think that that must've been just a liberating experience. And also it sounds like your doctor was wonderful and you really trusted her and you've had like a partner. I actually, in December of 2017, I had a lumpectomy and it was before I actually got pregnant. And I remember mm. I was planning on doing IVF and I remember having that feeling too. Like I just felt relief that at least something was happening and there wasn't all of this indecision. You know, I felt like my life was sort of hanging in the balance, waiting for all these new tests to come through. Right. Because I think that when you think about chronic illness, a lot of chronic illness is just that. It's like a not knowing, not having support for this in-between space where everybody knows that you're sick, but there's nothing to be done about it. And I think about a lot of like what ailed me as chronic illness. And so that just takes like a mental toll that for me, when this one specific thing was wrong, having a diagnosis for that, that was really powerful. 
because it meant that we could just, okay, now we could do that. And how soon after you got the diagnosis did you have surgery? I had a hysterectomy like probably a month after that. And so what kind of feelings did you go through preparing for that? Or were you just like, let's get over the finish line here? No, I had a lot of feelings. I was given the option to freeze my eggs and decided not to because one, the timeline was really tight. For anyone who's frozen their eggs, I think you know that. The timeline was really tight. There was also the possibility that like that procedure would spread the cancer in my body, which like I was not excited about. And it also meant delaying treatment and introducing more hormones in my body when what I was really fighting was like an estrogen dominance. So I thought about it a lot and did my research. When you don't have a womb in New York, you have to rent one, right? And so in New York State, at least right now, the laws on surrogacy are still like pretty tight. I believe that you still cannot get a commercial surrogate, you have to go through someone who is a family member, Mm -hmm. compassionate surrogacy, they call it. So you have to go out of state. So I did the math on that. What the fertility clinic had told me, like if everything goes right, the transfers, the egg freezing, the, the just every step of this process goes right, which like never happens. And we're able to do it all. That would have cost me like around $100,000, probably more. And when I heard that number, that for me was very much, I was like, okay, For myself, I hope that one day if I have $100,000 sitting in the bank, I use that to do something else. And I think that like if I had had a partner then or I had wanted kids, that calculus would have been a little different. But the idea of like mortgaging my life on this idea of family that was not fully formed, that I didn't have on this imaginary future family, that was something that was really hard for me. And that decision was really hard. It was really hard because I, I hadn't been living my life in a way that I was like, I think I'm going to have kids one day. That was just not happening. And I... Well, why would you? I mean, at that stage I mean, of your some, life. Some I mean, people do, right? I know they do. Some people but do. I know, but I also feel like it's important that it's not an expectation to be thinking about, like, having kids, even though biologically, I guess you're supposed to. It's like, you know, right. prime time to be, like, you know, making that plan. Right. And then I started thinking, maybe one day I'll have $200,000 and maybe I can buy a baby in a different way. And I think I was so focused on just getting better taking this like baby piece out of the equation, it just felt like emotional clutter to me. Yeah, And also financially, it felt really hard. Like when you have cancer, there's definitely some financial assistance for egg freezing. Like all these like Catholics show up and like Livestrong shows up. Like there are people who will take a little bit of the burden or sometimes like all of the burden of freezing your eggs. But then I'm like, I still have to pay for it every year, which I'm someone who works for myself. Am I going to have to destroy these eggs because I can't afford it? Like that's a different kind of emotional clutter. All of these things. So I made the calculus not to do it. And at the time, a lot of people told me that it was a mistake and I was really upset about it. But now I understand that what they were actually trying to tell me is that it almost like doesn't matter what happens with the eggs that you freeze. What matters is that you feel that you have a choice. Because now that I am better, and to be clear, I'm still a cancer patient and going through a lot of that stuff. But now that it feels a little more in control, I have some regret around that decision. And it's been really interesting. And I think that for me, a lot of that is tied into my mom died when I was 20. And the older I get, the more I'm obsessed with like a small person that looks like her. 
And that's a little demented also. It's like this biology is, this is wrong and strong. <laughs> it's, it's wrong and strong in this, in this impulse. And so I have a little bit of that. I have the hindsight of like, oh, well, you know, I could have done this, this, and this. I could have had treatment later. But this, this is all like... But you're here. Right. I'm here and it's all hindsight. So I am trying to have a lot of compassion for the young woman who made that decision in 2017, 2018. And really remember that she did the best that she could with the information that she could. Yeah. And when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Some days it's really hard, but most days it's fine. I think if it helped you to have the right mindset as you entered into an incredibly scary period of your life, I think that that's really helpful advice about looking at it not for this central important decision to, that everyone hopefully gets a, a chance and has the agency to make in their lives, but as emotional clutter. Mm -hmm. Because I think that you had to put your cancer treatment first. And you could have done it, but I think it would have been really hard. I think everything is hard. And what I'm really trying to do is I mean, to, having gone through it myself, right. just like at, right after having a lumpectomy, it was really, it was hard. But I also yeah. think that you can have a baby however you want to have a baby. I mean, I really believe, especially in my situation too, I've tried to share this with other people that reach out to me, is that if you want a family, you'll have a family. So you just have to choose the thing that is the desire. And I think that once you do, once you make that decision, I do think that it just starts to come into focus. I think that just depending on where you're at in the process, your feelings change. I can tell you that Probably if we were having this conversation last year, I would be in a puddle of tears. And this year, I'm not. And I'm hoping that next year, it'll be even different. I just think that life is just full of surprises. And I still have the arrogance of someone who is like in their 30s. For me, like where I'm really focused on was all of the energy that I spent in my 20s actively like not trying to get pregnant, but also really rejecting a lot of messages about what family meant to me. I don't mean like what family is for everybody else, but I think that like in my own situation, I was very much like, eh, like probably never going to be a mom. I don't want that. I don't like small children. Just like, you know, just having this assurance where it was like, I, I'm pretty sure that I will never have kids. Like I was choosing this life. And now that it's not something that I have an option of like choosing, I have been really surprised by my strong feelings about it, but I'm also okay with that. It's funny. It's like the month that I had my hysterectomy, some of my closest friends all got pregnant and I was like, wow, nobody tells you you're going to have feelings about that. And I had a so ton many of feelings. feelings. I had a ton of feelings about that. All children that I love, by the way, and now are like light up my world. But I think that it's also just really important to hold space for sadness, right? And not just like move on immediately. And I'm someone who is very stupid about their own feelings. I just, it takes me like five years to figure out why I'm upset or mad about something. And then five years later, I'm like, ah, well, the statute of limitations has expired on this feeling. And now I'm just trying to sit in the gross feelings that I have every day and just say like, okay, this is hard for me. It's hard for me, but it's also not the end of the world. And also 
I'm allowed to not feel great about everything. No, you don't have to put a bow on everything. Right. That's I, been like a huge revelation for me, which seems like very simple and whatever. But like I said, I'm like very dumb about my own feelings, which now that I'm menopausal, let me tell you, all I have is feelings every day. And so that has been quite instructive. Let's talk a little bit about menopause and perimenopause. I'm in a unique situation. I don't know a lot of people like me that had a kid at 49. And then just a few months after I had a kid, I turned 50. And I do think it's interesting what you said before. It's like you just don't know. It's like anything can happen. It's like anything really can happen. I mean, I do feel like there is a certain degree of impossibility even thinking about my own situation. But I think that my hormones are so bonkers right now and I have no idea like what's going to happen. Am I actually like heading into menopause? And so when exactly did it start? Did it start like shortly after you had your surgery? Yeah. So for me in surgery, I had a hysterectomy and a oophorectomy. So they took out my ovaries. And so menopause started immediately. And what was that like, if you don't mind just going into some details about it? I knew that I would <laughs> go into menopause. I'm like a feminist. I've like read things about menopause, but I just fully did not no one talks just did, about menopause. Yeah, like I just didn't understand. My oncologist told me, she was like, you're going to go into menopause immediately. And some people feel that very strongly and others don't. And the reading in between the lines there is that nobody actually is studying menopause, so they have no fucking clue what menopause is. Well, they don't study women's health as much as they study men's health. Right. They say that it's because of hormonal changes in women. It's harder <laughs> to get clean studies. How much garbage is that? That's a there, lot of garbage. There's a lot of garbage. All I will tell you as a cancer patient is that menopause hit me incredibly hard. And if I'm really honest about it, there are days where I was like, wow, cancer was walk in the park. Menopause is hell. And it's funny also, I have like very regular checkups at my oncologist. And every time I go and it's like, we'll talk about everything. It's like, how are you pooping? How are you eating? Nothing is off the table. These are people who put nuclear material in your body, like carefully weigh them and like, you know, like really take care of you. And the minute you're like, well, menopause, everybody looks at you and goes, have you tried peppermint oil? <laughs> like, what about a little lavender behind that? And I'm like, do you have, I'm like, can you nuke this? Self-care. I'm like, can you nuke this? Like, what is going on here? The way that I understand it, perimenopause is a way of your body easing into menopause. And from listening to my friends talk about it, that is also very brutal. But the going straight to it has been, wow, 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 what a journey. How are you feeling? This is year two now. It's, it's getting better. Has the but peppermint it's still oil there. helped? No, nothing <laughs> has helped. The only thing that isn't is, Isn't hormone replacement like supposed to be really important? I can't do hormone replacements okay. because I'm a cancer patient. Okay. And so that's not an option for me. But you're in remission. Yes, okay. I'm currently in remission. And it's just... The hot flashes are legendary. Like nobody Can we just let's just talk about a hot flash. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what my insane. hot flash is. So basically first I'm I'm gonna make a sound because this is the sound I always imagine happens. <laughs> it's like like that. All of a sudden it starts here and it's like you can kind of feel it when it's happening. I've had like a handful of them, but it's like I called my sister afterwards and I was like, I think I had a hot flash. She's like, you'd know it. Oh, no, you know it. Like I had Satan to, like it was like I took your a body. shower. Yeah. No. Satan is inside your body when you're having a hot flash. I was having them like multiple times a day. And just the, the quickness with which it happens, the fact that you are so not in control of what the trigger is. I mean, they say they say the triggers are basically everything. It's like if you eat spicy food, if you get like I noticed that whenever I would get embarrassed, like if something was um, 
just I would get like uncomfortable about a particular situation. Don't be I uncomfortable. Would get, I would get a hot flash immediately. A very, very kind friend um, sent me this beautiful thing called a chillo, which is basically a pillow that you put in your <laughs> freezer. Thank you, Ruth Ann. You changed my life with the chillo. She also told me I needed a bandana at all times. Um, you know, like the sweating, we the, love her. the sweating is really out of control, but I think that beyond the physical manifestations of it, a thing that became also hard for me is that I'm a person who has always been very much in control of my feelings. And I don't say this as a point of pride. It's actually bad. I just, I repress every feeling I have. I always told my therapist, I'm like, I'm a one feelings a day person. If we're sad today, we're going with sadness menopause is multiple feelings at the same time but the thing that has been really funny like at least a year and change out is that now I'm like oh man the hormones are actually the tool of the patriarchy like this is what holds you back you know this is why you are an in control person and you're and it's why we always talk so badly about PMS you know everybody's always like when you're in PMS you're a bitch there's so many stereotypes attached to it there's this amazing op-ed in the New York Times that I wish I could find again that was a, I believe the woman was a neurobiologist but she like studied PMS and she was saying you know She's like, let me submit to you that those four days of the month are the days that you are actually yourself. And the rest of the month, you're just accommodating everyone else. And I was like, oh, my God, this is what menopause feels like. And so now I am just ruthlessly my like I just I cannot go to bed if I'm not fully self-expressed. And that's been very hard on all my relationships because I am usually the person who like nothing is wrong with. And now everything is wrong mm -hmm. all of the time, or mm -hmm. at least like I, I say it now. Um but also just that tension of like your feelings are just at the surface every single time. For me as someone who, you know, loves repressed feelings, that's been really tough. Your book that's coming out next year in 2020 called Big Friendship that you're co-writing with Anne Friedman, what's the heart of it? And and what do you think the significance will be in it coming out, you know, during an election year? I What's your dream I'm ticket? For, I'm rooting for a lot of people. Honestly, a lot of people are better than what we have right now. And I am mostly just excited that we have so much choice. It almost never happens that there is so many people who are running for president on our side, at least, and so many of them are women. I mean, I feel like it's already a victory to some degree, just seeing so many women on debate night and just honestly saying the most significant and sort of poignant things about like what's happening in the world right now. But I want to talk quickly about the book. And was it planned to have it come out in 2020? 
No, it was not planned to come out in 2020. I don't think it was planned to write a book at all. So the book is called Big Friendship. You're the first person actually who's asked me about this publicly. But our hope for the book really is that it will put friendship front and center as a relationship that is valid. A lot of people say that your friends are very important. We're living in this moment where, at least for women, collecting friends and showing that you have friends is uh, very cool. The mean girls have almost lost but the truth is that like friendship is an institution that demands to be taken very seriously. For Anne and I, like we always say that friendship is the main course. It's not the dessert of life. And society can look differently and we believe better if you let adults just choose who the important people in their lives are. It doesn't have to just be your parents. It doesn't just have to be your spouse because some people don't have those bonds or are not close to those people in their lives. But if we're saying that having friends is good and friends matter then let's put it all out on the table. And I think that for for me at least, friendship has been so instrumental in who I am today and how I love and how I learn and how I live. And when I think about the greatest loves of my lives, a lot of them have been my friends. But more than anything, we just want the book to be a conversation about taking friendship seriously. The body of work of friendship really demands that we take it seriously. I love that. I also find that as I get older, friendship becomes harder, but then it also gets easier with some people too. I think that's probably just me having a little bit more clarity about the kinds of friends, or at least the friends that actually make me feel like a better version of myself, if that makes sense. I think especially given sort of like the life changes that I've been through as well, it's like it's harder for me to manage the friends that I don't always know where I stand with them. Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean, but I think that that is just a direct byproduct of the fact that we don't tell people that it's okay to just ask that. I think that being a human being who wants to be in community with other human beings, no matter how you do it, is incredibly hard. And the older you get, the harder it becomes. But I think that in friendship specifically, we just assume that it's always supposed to feel good and it's nice. And we don't bring that same rigor and energy, right? It's like, what does the world look like if you're not afraid to tell your friends like, hey, I feel like things aren't going great right now. Like, where do we stand? I just had a kid and I feel like we have two different kind of sets of priorities or we are growing apart. Like, what does life look like if you are empowered to say that and most people can look back at you and say exactly what they feel instead of feeling shame that you're not allowed to ask your friends that? Yeah. I think a certain anxiety that I have and I think that you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but when I was in my early 30s, even late 20s, a lot of my closest friends started to get married and pair off. And I didn't meet my husband until I was almost 40. And I remember feeling like, and I helped to launch Refiner29 in 2005. So that was like the, the path I was taking. And that was the emphasis of my focus. And it did feel really lonely watching all of my close friends kind of pair off and, and mm -hmm. have children and knowing that that might not be my experience as I got older. So I've I have such close friendships with many people that don't have children. And what's difficult, and I don't think enough people talk about it, is these camps that we kind of have. It's like your friends that don't have kids and your friends that do have kids. And I think that that's been a really interesting experience for me, having been someone who didn't have children for a really long time mm -hmm. and now trying to learn how to navigate those two sides and figure out like where I belong. Because for the most part, I feel like I belong with the people that don't have kids. And it's kind of just getting acquainted with this new side of my myself and I still have those feelings of feeling left out yeah. and like I can't relate because even though I'm going through it now and it's it's very strange and 
there's not a lot of people to talk to about it, actually. I mean, I think that for me, the thing that I am trying to challenge is this idea that there are teams, right? It's like they're the people who have kids, they're the people who have their <laughs> who are paired off. It really frustrates me that we self-segregate in those moments. I know why we I do, do it. it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not yeah. saying it's imposed on me. I'm just saying that I do it to myself. I mean, I think like my experience is not dissimilar from yours. So I think that that's um, that's something that's actually very relatable. It's been interesting for me because I I went to a very religious high school, so people basically have been getting married since I was 18. Like I have the friends who've been married for almost 20 years now. I have the friends who just got married. And I think that I try to have a lot of compassion for people who have things that the world tells me I'm supposed to have, like a partner or children, because I have watched my married friends be incredibly lonely in their marriages. I've watched my mom friends be incredibly lonely and challenged, you know, and not supported in being a mom. So this idea that like the grass is greener and like, like if you really dig into it, uh, or that's happiness, right? Like, or that's happiness. I was like, no, like people have different kinds of life experiences. Like I don't have a kid. I don't have a partner. All of life is give and take. Like I am there for my partnered friends and my friends with children who don't make me feel that my life is less important because it's not organized the same way as them. Right. Because I think that as a single no kids, a lot of times people just think you just have unlimited free time. And I was like, no, we made different choices and also life happened to us differently. And I'm really lucky that I have people in my life who don't make me feel that way ever, right? And I that's think so that important. The thing that's really good about friendship, to go back to friendship, is that I think that it is maybe the only kind of relationship that can expand and contract like this, where you can say like, hey... I have this bananas work project or actually like I'm a new mom. I just won't have time for you the way that I have right now. But we can renegotiate the boundaries of like what that means for our relationship. You kind of can't do that (laughs) in other kinds of relationships. And I think that for me, it's about having a lot of compassion and, and opening up those channels of communication because the friends that I'm telling you who are the new moms, it's like watching their identities be completely challenged and changed by this thing that everybody tells you is like the miracle of life. And I'm like, well, everybody loves to see pregnant women, but nobody actually wants to help moms in the world. Like the world is clearly hard for working mothers. It's such a reminder that society will always try to dictate and impose the way that you live your lives. But if these people are really important to you, that shit doesn't matter. All that matters is that you love them and you want to support them. And like I said, anything can happen in life. I think that every day that... You get older, if you don't realize that, that truly life is like a bananas kind of miracle and that you will get things that you never dreamed of and you will probably not get some of the things that you've been striving for your whole life. And you realize they weren't that important. Right, and they weren't that important. I was like, what's important is putting one foot in front of the other and loving the people that love you so hard and being someone who has integrity and someone who makes it worth it to wake up for every day. I think that that's what the essence of life is. I love that. All right, let's toast our waters. Here's to anything can happen. Anything can happen. Amina, too. Thank, thank you, you so much for being a guest on Unstyled today. I loved talking to you, and um, I hope you'll come back. I will absolutely come back. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. Taking a photo of you now. <laughs> <laughs> hope you're inspired after hearing Aminatu's story. 
For even more on Style Dextras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head over to refinery29.com to find this episode and more. And make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced by Rebecca Easley and Jay Brunson with production assistance by Kate Spencer. Unstyled was edited by Priscilla Mena and Anna Costanza and our writer is Kelsey Miller. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios and Gotham Podcast Studio. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with the Real Housewives of New York's Dorinda Medley on getting older, wiser, and better. See you then.